0: Hello, and welcome to Differential Discussions. I'm Melissa. And I'm Dave. And today we have Dr. Kelly Mackless back with us, and she's going to present some information for us about megakaryocytes and formation. So
1: welcome back, Kelly. We're very excited for this. Thank you so much for having me back. I am so excited. I had such a blast the first time, and I am really excited to be back way more comfortable talking about my science rather than myself and to share with you, um, some, I mean, not a little bit about my research, but just about my favorite cells, megakaryocytes, and how they make platelets. So, I mean, I prepared some slides, mostly some fun images and movies, and I'm hoping that y'all will have some questions along the way so we can get started. And that being said, I know it's just interactive for the three of us, but um, I'm guessing my, I know my Twitter information is linked on here. So if other people have questions, please get in touch with me. I'm always so happy to talk about this. Okay, so we just start with platelets in the blood. Um, I think if you know anything about platelets, then you probably kind of know them as the bandages of the blood because we think of them as maybe their full-time job is to stop you from bleeding. So if you have vascular damage, if you have a cut, the, the clot, the blood clot that you have is initiated by platelets. And you can see this movie. This is a movie of platelets activating. And when they activate, they They stick to the wound and they um, clump together and they actually physically plug that wound. So not having platelets is incompatible with life because you would hemorrhage and die. Um, And it's kind of amazing because these cells don't have a nucleus. They're tiny. So they circulate in an inactive form. And when there's vascular damage, they activate. And we'll talk a little bit about that later, um, what triggers that. And then they um, spread, they clump, and they physically plug that wound. So don't let people tell you that platelets are not a cell. They are a cell, even though they're small and they don't have a nucleus. Um, They live about 10 days and you have about a trillion in circulation. So they only live about 10 days. So they're constantly being produced by megakaryocytes, which is what we're gonna talk about. Um, This is a cross section of a platelet down here. This is a scanning electron micrograph. And these circles that you see are granules. These granules are full of proteins and the kind of proteins that are in these granules are wild. Uh, They participate in all sorts of things. Uh, When the platelet is activated, it releases the granules. And because the diversity of proteins in that granules, platelets actually play a role, not just in blood clotting, but in things like wound healing, angiogenesis, which is new blood vessel formation, inflammation, immunity, cancer, all these different things. We kind of call it like their night job, but don't just think of platelets as blood clotting cells. Platelets do everything um so they're very busy little cells so I already have a couple questions yeah go for it
0: can you go back to the other slide mm-hmm. on on the cross section of the platelet can you tell the difference between the alpha and the dense granules when you look at the scanning electrons? yes
1: Yeah. so the dense granules weirdly are the one these and they just have one dense spot here um and actually, and the these ones, there's only a couple dense granules per. And actually, this right here is a mitochondria. Um, you can see the cisternae. So here, here are mitochondria, and the other things are alpha granules. So platelets have about nine mitochondria per platelet. And the mitochondria are really weird. In most cells, mitochondria form like a network, and platelet mitochondria are very small, but they are pretty active. Um, And they can actually eject their mitochondria into other cells. It's really wild. We're just finding that out. Um, So and and platelets also have like proteasome and they have ribosomes so they can make proteins even though they don't have a nucleus. So they're actually really metabolically active, even though they don't have a nucleus. They have a lot of other organelles in them.
2: Um, I'm just really happy that you called them cells.
1: They're cells. I, I get so I, offended when people say they're not cells. it's
2: a huge pet peeve of mine because yeah. like we'll call red blood cells cells that's and true and yeah.
1: I mean I don't know much about red blood cells but like these platelets are doing it all
2: yeah no, no for so real I, I I think on a lot of levels platelets are more complicated than red yeah blood they're cells. pretty
1: complicated
2: um but yeah no I'm I've, I just I get very annoyed myself they're uh, like
1: cell fragments, no yeah, doubt. Get out
2: of here with that.
1: Yeah, come on.
0: <laughs> and and then, so, sorry, one more question yeah. for you. On the other slide, that video, when the platelets become activated, they like spread out, and you can kind of see oh, look, it's right there. You can kind of see, like, I don't know
1: what it is, something like form around them. Yeah, what is that? Because so you can see that here. So yeah. this. Um, it is called the mic my- peripheral microtubule coil. So that def- literally defines a platelet. It goes around exactly eight times. Um, and this is weird because it almost looks like it would be a nucleus, but it's not. Um, but what platelets do is that this t- coil contracts into the middle. Um, and that the Ooh, sorry. That the um it the rest of the plate. Pl- so it, there's the two cytoskeletal systems is kind of getting getting uh into it, but the microtubules contract and the rest of the membrane and actin spread. Um and then um it oh, kind of like a way to cover to cover more ground. So I'm going to move this. Yeah. Yeah. It's go funny. Go Cause in the
2: video, you can see the, uh, the pseudopods that are described in the yes movement, right? right? That's spikiness, yeah. but it so seems because two they're two laying different... on a flat surface, right? You yeah. So that. it's two
1: different phases of spreading. And yeah. it also depends on the surface and kind of what receptors are, are engaged. So, you can, and like, look here, you can see like a red blood cell versus, so you can see here, these are still um, unactivated versus the activated platelets. And really the way to tell a bona fide platelet is to stain. Um, This is a specific protein called tubulin for this coil. And if it's intact and it's only, there's a, there's a version of it, beta one tubulin, that's only in megakaryocytes and platelets. So like if we're reviewing a paper or something like this, say, okay, well, this is a platelet. It's not just like something else we said, like stain for this coil, show us it's intact. This is also for people that are like trying to make platelets in vitro for transfusion. And we're like, oh, we're gonna put this in platelets. And I'm like, show me a coil, show me it's intact before you put that in a in a patient. And show me that when you activate the platelet that it contracts, because that is basically what a platelet is. And I'll show you later on how that comes from a megakaryocyte. Um in a lot of thrombocytopenias, almost all the thrombocytopenias that we understand, there's some disruption in this coil. So basically, if this protein, if this coil is too thick, it can't um, be like as tight. So you'll get a macrothrombocytopenia and your platelets will be too big. If it's too thin, then the platelets can be smaller. If you kind of think of it as a garden hose, it makes sense. So most of the thrombocytopenias have to do with the cytoskeleton because that's basically what buds off the platelets from the megakaryocytes. So how are platelets made? And evolutionarily, this is actually wild that megakaryocytes exist because platelets actually existed or thrombocytes So, like, in lower organisms, platelets, um, like, fish have thrombocytes, which is a mix between a white blood cell and a platelet. And then somewhere around the platypus, I swear I didn't make that up, um, they're evolved to be a megakaryocyte. So, it's, like, kind of went backwards, um, a megakaryocyte that made platelets. So like, for example, like dinosaurs did fine with platelets and then why evolution decided we need something stuck in the bone marrow, no one really knows. Um, so megakaryocytes are cells that stay in the bone marrow. Um, They're huge um, and they are derived from hematopoietic stem cells. So hematopoietic stem cells basically can turn into any blood cell. And the reason that they turn into megakaryocytes is because of um, seeing a cytokine called TPO. So people are probably familiar with EPO or erythropoietin that directs the differentiation of red blood cells. So similarly, there's TPO or thrombopoietin, which directs megakaryocyte differentiation. So megakaryocytes are actually very, very rare. They're only 0.01% of bone marrow cells, but because they're so big, if you actually like look at a marrow sample, you might think that they're not as rare because they're very easily spotted. Um, They're like 20 to, they can be up to 100 microns. I think they're usually around like 20 to 50. Um, They have a couple very, very unique properties that no other cells have one is that they're polyploid which is represented here so their nucleus has very many lobes they undergo nuclear rep- replication without cell division so they don't have they don't have multiple nuclei but their nucleus has multiple lobes that's within one nuclear membrane the second is they have what's called a demarcation membrane system So if you think about it, just one cell membrane wouldn't be enough because one megakaryocyte makes about 2,000 platelets. So they need all this extra membrane. Um, What I always think about is like the intestine like has all this extra surface area. So it's kind of like that. So you have the plasma membrane and then it kind of goes into the cytoplasm and it just has all this extra folds that eventually kind of comes out, and I'll show you images of it. So when the megakaryocyte undergoes this maturation process, and when it's ready to make platelets, and we don't really understand what that means, ready, um, it will sit up against the vasculature, up against the endothelial cells. And this diagram is actually now incorrect. You can see that Uh, We made it in 2013, but we now think that it sticks these proplatelet protrusions through the actual cytoplasm of endothelial cells, not between them. Um, These proplatelet extensions that go into the vasculature. And then because of the turbulence of the blood, very quickly, um, they undergo rapid fission events. And that's kind of what I was talking about. So we have eight coils, but let's say the coils are extra thick. These platelets are not going to be able to make as many fission events. So you're going to have a macrothrombocytopenia. Let's say those coils are, there's a mutation and those coils are really thin. Now the platelets can can break apart more and you might have a microthrombocytopenia. So that's some of the causes for... Um, some of the like Wiscott Aldrich syndrome is a is a thrombocytopenia that's an actin mutation and some of the uh, some of the genetic reasons for thrombocytopenias. So these are some really cool EMs of megakaryocytes. Um, I believe this is one in culture. So I'll point out some of the features. So this is the nucleus. Um, You can see some of the lobes. Remember, it's in cross-section, so it's just what you pick. And then what you see here are the holes from the demarcation membrane. So you can see it's everywhere. The cytoplasm is packed with it. And then everything else is just full of granules. So what megakaryocytes have are called multivesicular bodies, And then those multivesicular bodies get packaged and sorted into the platelet alpha granules. We don't really understand how that happens and it's wild. And if you feel very confused and you feel like your mind is blown, I also do because platelets are so specific. Like I told you, they're like, okay, you're going to get these specific alpha granules with the content that is like almost always the same. You're going to get nine mitochondria. You're going to get all this and somehow this mess, I don't want to like, you know, it's a, looks like a bit of a mess is going to get sorted into those platelets every time. And the multivesicular bodies are not like dense and alpha granules They're It's everything in one. And that then gets sorted. This here is actually like a whole bone marrow that we slice. So this was a femur. And you can see that this is a red blood cell. So this is the lumen side. And like, this is the nucleus of the endothelial cell. So this is the really thin endothelial cell. And this is the megakaryocyte sitting up against it. So if it was going to make platelets, it's going to send its extension into here. And then these are the cells around it. This is its nucleus, like pressed up against here. Is, is it
2: based off of these images that you came to the conclusion that it's not interrupting the endothelial cells? It's based
1: on images like this. So people do this thing called CLEM, correlative, correlative light and electron microscopy, which is this crazy technique where they do intravital microscopy so they wa- I'll show you some of it where they watch proplatelets um in living mice and then what they'll do is they'll stop and perfuse it with fixative and then take it out of the mouse and then do electron microscopy on it because that's basically the only thing you can do because this is just a snapshot in time yep and the problem with pro platelets, like you almost never capture them in these images because they're so delicate. So they come off so easily. So you have to be so careful.
2: Yeah. And when you think about the speed of the, the, the blood flow, right? I mean, that, that's, yeah. it's remarkably fast, right? And yeah. like
1: any kind of technique where you're handling the sample or fixing it or like, you're just gonna, it's very, very difficult. Mm. So people that do this, it's like you have to just be an expert in sample preparation, which is like maybe not the most exciting thing to do, but that's what you wind up doing. And these people that make these discoveries are just expert microscopists basically. And actually, also show some images that some of the most beautiful evidence and images were from like the 50s because people were so good at preparing samples um, and I think probably a lot more patient than we are now Uh, very meticulous scientists and we just don't do that anymore because we're like oh we have technology
2: yeah, I, I feel like the lack of patience too is kind of a um a symptom of the culture around research. Yeah, like we yeah. We kind of talked
1: about, right? Yeah, like yeah. single cell sequence it. Yeah, yeah. And
3: yeah.
1: they're like dissecting out blood vessels. We just, yeah. I, I mean, maybe some people do, but it's, I think it's more rare. So some of the images that we have from a long time ago are amazing. And also like bring, I I'm, very happy that I get to show them because people are like oh well you know that was so long ago I'm like it's still valid what do you think like we tend to discount research and I'm like I don't know I think people were like more careful then
2: yeah and it's not like humans have changed right I mean this is such a small time window
1: yeah it's still it's like still yeah it's a this is I mean you know when I write my grants it's sometimes we have to talk about disease and For the most part, these diseases are, you know, thermocytopenia is the same, but this is a fundamental question that's still, like, we know very, very little about. So so this is just another really cool image. You can see how big this megakaryocyte is. Here's a whole endothelial cell. It's so beautiful with this very thin... um, cytoplasm stretching here you can see the nuclear lobes and you can appreciate just like how full this megakaryocyte is with these are like the the multivesicular bodies and then this demarcation membrane that's just throughout it it's just like such a behemoth of a cell i just love them so much so um eventually we think that they'll make proplatelets um when I don't know. So, just talking a little bit about hematopoiesis so we can understand. Um, And because it's changing. So, I just want you all to like have this knowledge because I think it's really cool and it's like very right now. So, the dogma is that we have HSCs, hematopoietic stem cells um long term and short term so lt and st the long term are like sleepy they're like your reserve they're like done in case of emergency we don't want them to be differentiating because that is like the more you differentiate the more you could get mutations so they're just chilling there. We don't want them accumulating mutations. The short-term are the ones that are going to become activated when you like need more stem cells. So these are basically, as we go in this direction, they're becoming more and more committed to a certain lineage um, and therefore less um stem-like. So these can, short-term HSCs can pretty much become anything. And then multipotent progenitors means they can now become, they're a little bit, we call them biased. So for example, this MPP4, we think are more likely to become lymphoid. Um, MPP2 um, are more likely to become myeloid as our MPP3s and then we have like a common myeloid progenitor so they could become granulocytes and macrophages or megakaryocytes then we go to the meps which could only become megakaryocytes or erythroids and then we get to the meg progenitors which are like basically just immature megakaryocytes and then we get to the megakaryocytes so basically a lot of what we do is characterizing things on these lineages and um a lot of hematologists uh look here and and cells these different cells will express different markers so we can characterize where a cell is depending on these markers one of the biggest um i don't know like one of the biggest findings honestly it this was in 2008 um, so I think one of the biggest findings, five years, yeah, 5 it's still within the past five years, it feels like it was like very recent, was that these stem cells, these hematopoietic stem cells can actually skip this whole process and directly become megakaryocytes under emergency conditions.
2: So I see it, it looks like you have two categories there too. Is that von Willebrand factor? positive and yes. vulnerable factor negative so
1: the ones that skip this process one of the ways that you can um to like find them is that they're vulnerable and factor positive um that's how they separated them apart which is it was crazy like everyone was like what so now they're called like Meg pre- megacar like committed hematopoietic stem cells And people think just because platelets are so important that let's say there's like an emergency condition where your platelet counts are really low, the HSCs are like, screw this, we're not going through this whole process, which takes like a week, we're just going to go directly to megakaryocyte. But that's also really wild because like megs are so big, they're polyploid. So we don't understand how they're doing all of that so quickly. Yeah, so I was just like,
3: about to
2: oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. The, I'm, I'm curious because like I wonder if there's a measurable difference between uh yes. end product megakaryocyte, right?
1: Well, the, we don't know that. I'm like, I want to know that so badly. So, like, for example, we have like von Willebrand factor reporter mice. So the everything that expresses von Rollerburn factor is green. So we can we can separate the HSCs that are green versus not green and we're studying them. So we're like, okay, these are the HSCs that are going to turn into megs versus that. And we're trying to look. So then we develop them in vitro and look at those MEGs. And so we're doing some of those studies in our lab now. So, and then like, are the platelets different? It's so interesting. Um, we're doing a lot of And we're finding that actually maybe the meds are different and maybe they look a little more immune-like. And uh, I don't know. It's all very, very interesting. Um, Because one of the times when this is turned up is during inflammation. Um, That's one of... They don't... No one's found exactly when um, these committed meds are... Like, no one's found a factor that turns it on yet. It's just like... People call it emergency hematopoiesis now. No one's found, an it, TIPO doesn't do it. TIPO is like the normal thing that drives this process, but TIPO doesn't drive this process.
2: And TIPO not an inflammatory. Uh, no,
1: TIPO is so, like right, the
2: usual. So, yeah, yeah. And
1: TIPO takes a long time because it drives this process. This is definitely emergency process. And the things that people have found are like ways to like, stress mice like make them inflammatory make them very thrombocytopenic but that's like obviously a whole cascade of of stuff into the marrow no right. one's found like i give them this one thing
3: yeah
1: so so it's is, very interesting is, is
2: that like a way of research so like I'm i'm just some dummy right but like for those, you have like a list of like the inflammatory cytokines and then just kind of knock them off one by one. I mean, you
1: could, but that's like a very long, (laughs) a very long process. And the problem with that is that if you give one inflammatory cytokine, you're probably going to up, like you're going to induce like a cytokine storm.
3: True. True.
1: So. And and you said that this is a lot quicker. So normally it
0: would take about a week. How much quicker is it to the end product when it's hours
3: hours yeah yeah yeah
1: oh my gosh hours to increase platelet counts
3: that's insane
1: yeah it's so cool
2: and it kind of like it there's so much of the uh for lack of a better word dogma and like the textbooks right about um yeah this would
1: definitely not be in in
2: textbook
1: well i don't know maybe
3: yeah actually
1: i wrote the last chapter (laughs) (laughs) i didn't but not about mm, maybe. I don't think I put this in there because I'm lazy and I didn't update it, but it's a good point. No one reads textbooks. I
2: I can't express to you that in the however long 15, 20 minutes, like my understanding has advanced more than it has. Like, oh my gosh, CV- that makes me
1: very happy. I'm like,
3: serious. Yeah. Uh, that's great.
1: Yeah. I mean, some of these things have come very far in the past couple of years and honestly that's we're just a lot of this is just always at the limit of technology right so we're constantly just learning things as technology evolves and lets us do it which is so cool Mm -hmm. so this committed progenitor we're just so interested in we're just trying to keep finding out things and megakaryocytes are just difficult cells. So we're constantly just like fighting with
3: them.
0: (laughs) So so two things, one, just a kind of a comment is that makes you wonder, does this happen to like red cells when you have severe anemia or, you know, to the neutrophilic lineage when you have a severe infection? So that opens up a whole door of does it happen to other things and then the, the second thing that I wanted to mention is you said megakaryocytes are difficult cells can you tell us why they would be difficult
1: yeah well the first thing about red blood cells is really interesting especially because they share this progenitor so sometimes there's like a balance between megs and erythroid cells if there's a common like you know, progenitor sharing and they'll like shift. So I think that question is very interesting to look for. One of the reasons MEG's are so difficult to study first is because most of these cells, you can study them because they leave the bone marrow. So you're like, oh, I'll study neutrophils once they leave the bone marrow or even my blood cells. But MEG's never leave the bone marrow, so just ease of getting them is hard. Um, and I think that's why the field is so far behind. People have studied platelets, but not megs. Also, most people are like, oh, CRISPR, love CRISPR. Now we just do a CRISPR library, and knock things out. But you can't do that in MEGS because you would have to knock out 16 versions of the gene because they're usually 16N. So you can't do the normal genetic screens in MEGS in the same way. It's so hard. So you're like, oh, I think this gene is important. And then you have to do functional studies and all this stuff. And sometimes it's just like a little disappointing and it's not... Um, maybe what you thought, but you're already like two years, in, <laughs> two years, in, and then you're like, "Here's a paper. It's not as exciting as I hoped it would be. Like, it's just not because they are so unique and they do this weird thing with the cell cycle. It's, it's not the dogma of other cells. You're making up the the rules as you go along. But like, the good thing is everything you find is kind of new, so that's cool." But things are just slower because you're working with a primary cell. In general, all these cells, hematopoietic cells, especially stem cells, don't like to be edited. And that's great because they're in our genome. They have protection against it. So they're more difficult to work with, um, which is evolutionarily great. Um, So, so reasons like that. Um, I think it's kind of my uh, job security because people are like, nah, don't want to work with that cell, all you. (laughs) So, so yeah.
0: And I'm sorry, I have another question. So when you're looking at megakaryocytes in culture versus the ones that are, you know, fresh from the source, can you limit, like when you are talking about the ploidy, can you limit it to 16? Because I know sometimes they'll go 32 or 64. Yeah. So can you limit it in culture or how does that work?
1: So we always use like fresh, like there's no like cell lines or things like that. We always use mags that are cultured from like urine bone marrow. um, And we just do it every week. We like culture them. Um, some we actually sometimes get human bone marrow as well. We get like discarded um femoral heads from like hip replacements that we can use. So that's kind of cool. Um, but we have no control over the over them, and the cells in culture will wind up being at all different ploidy. So when we do experiments, it's just a mix of ploidies we can by flow cytometry sort them by ploidy and we can sort them by like roughly maturation but because the cells are so so like most when you hear that people sort cells by ploidy like the cells are a lot smaller and then you can sort them and recover the cells and do things But I know it's, this seems trivial, but this is just science. Science is kind of at its core trivial. Um, The actual nozzle. So, you know, it's like a machine and the cells come out a nozzle um, is a certain size. And even the biggest nozzle is a bit uncomfortable for megakaryocytes because they're big and they're also delicate. They're very, they're delicate little babies and they don't like being sorted. So when we sort our megakaryocytes, they're just not gonna live afterwards. So we can do experiments where we sort them and then maybe do like genomics or proteomics or something like that. But it's like very annoying that if we wanna sort them by ploidy or something like that, we can't then recover and look at them functionally. So it's just another reason why they're difficult. So we're like, oh, we're so interested. We want to sort them by ploidy and then see which one make the most platelets. Just so can't do that. The
2: so the um the delicateness of the megakaryocyte, I'm I'm kind of like, these are all assumptions, right? But it, that comes from the demarcation system sort maybe.
1: of like yeah. I would I think so probably but we're not exactly sure like they might stick around for a little while but they're just gonna look crappy and not make platelets mm. um they're just like maybe they just hate us I don't know but they're just not gonna be that that happy Um, we could like, you know, that's what I'm saying. Like maybe a technology will come out where it's like more of a filter system or there are ways maybe with beads that we can try, where you can like have beads conjugated to antibodies, but like that obviously wouldn't work for ploidy. Like if a new technology came out to sort things and we can try that, but like current flow cytometers where it like goes through a tube and then out a nozzle, it's just like, they're just not happy being Mm -hmm. sorted that way or separated that way so we're like constantly trying new things so like we worked with a collaborator to do single cell based on on uh, ploidy and that was super interesting but then if we want to validate it and say okay well we know these are different transcripts well what does that mean functionally now what do we do we don't really know functionally because we can't separate them Mm -hmm. so it's Mm. limited meaning because transcripts are just transcripts.
3: Mm. Yeah. This is super cool.
1: Like the woes of my research. I'm complaining to you right now. No, but But these these like you know you're butting up against.
3: Yep.
1: So um so this is kind of what I was talking about in the field. Um so James Homer Wright, we think of as the father of the platelet field, in 1906 he he saw what actually at Mass General what he termed uh, uh, blood plates because of kind of what they look like in circulation and and that those were platelets, um, and and actually in 1957 Yamada first described the this highly invaginated membrane system and called it the demarcation membrane. He thought that those fields that you see here demarcated um, platelet territories and it kind of burst into. um, And then in 1976, Becker and Debrin, this is some of, I love this image. Um, This is pseudocolored, of course, uh, proposed this pro-platelet theory. Um, This is the inside of a blood vessel, and you can see them sticking out. And then that was furthered by Bradley and Tablin and Levin. And then it wasn't until 1994, which is getting further away, but I still think feels very recent, Um, that Ken Koshansky and David Cooter um, isolated and cloned Tipo for the first time. So... Between 1994 and 1996, was the first time that megakaryocytes were cultured. So it was, you know, we we're studying platelets in 1900, and megakaryocytes weren't being studied in vitro until 1996. So it's like a huge difference. Um, and that's why the field is so, 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 so far behind, most like other cell biology. It it sounds like
2: it wasn't low hanging fruit, right? Like how you talk about the megakaryocyte being Yeah, taken. well
1: I mean who's yeah. going into the bone I mean, we're like yeah. doing blood rituals like yeah. for as long as humans are around, right? We're just like get that blood, humors, you know, like leeches bleeding people. No one's going into the bone marrow. So, even though people are like we're pretty sure that's where these cells come from, it's just like not a not a key thing. And then I who I did my postdoc with, Joe Italiano um, and John Hartwig were the people that really studied the cytoskeleton and worked out a lot of this process of how the proplatelets are elongated. And this is like that culture system. So just like this really beautiful image. This is like honestly what got me. I saw Joe do a talk and I was like, I like need to do to take these movies and this was the pivotal image that Joe took that was published this was one of the first movies of a megakaryocyte yeah making proplatelets in vitro so basically this is the nucleus that gets pushed aside and it makes its entire cytoplasm into proplatelets um so uh the next I'll show you in vivo it looks a little different because it's directional but it's just like amazing it's so
3: so so, cool
1: it's so cool yeah they're amazing cells so this was the image taken Uh and then this is intravital so this is in vivo and you can see um these cells sit up against the vasculature, and they release these long proplatelet extensions into the flowing blood. And they know somehow it's something that another thing we're still trying to understand. Um, they don't really, there are disorders um, where you'll find them in the bone marrow. And, but that causes thrombocytopenia um, in healthy people. They release it into the sinusoids so
2: so, uh so in some individuals the the protoplatelet never makes it into the
3: circulation yeah and
1: again those are mostly cytoskeletal disorders where the the defect is that they can't push through
3: Mm -hmm. mostly
1: so they don't have like like we call the cytoskeleton like the bones and muscles of the cell so like they can't they they have to actually make a hole um to and they can't make that hole which is um another use of the cytoskeleton it's
2: it's pretty wild that the megakaryocyte disrupts the endothelial cell yeah it's so crazy It's, it's like
1: yeah and we like only know a little bit about how that happens because it's really hard to to like you know, the resolution on this is getting better. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll show you at the end, this like organoid that we're using. That's one of the things that we hope to use it for. We're like some of the microfluidic platforms where we can co-culture endothelial cells and MEGs, because you kind of need like an in-between system because you just, I mean, you can't like get that good of resolution in a mouse. Like this is already like very good. Mm -hmm. And in just 2D cultures, they're just not interacting in the same way. It's so hard to reproduce biology. So this is like an up close of the cytoskeleton. The tubulin is labeled. So you can see what's actually happening is that they're um, polymerized and they're sliding. Um, It's One of the things that Joe figured out is that it's like a telescoping mechanism. So if you think of a telescope, it's like going outward um, and then it circles back on itself. So it comes to a point at the end where there's like, basically it thins so much that there's a fission event and it releases into the flowing blood.
0: So does it release and then the tubulin goes into a circle form inside of that little platelet? Exactly.
1: Exactly. Very cool.
3: I so, just got.
2: Thank you for saying that because I just it just clicked.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, there like, are like the
0: two videos on the left. If you look at them together, you can kind of see the little proto platelet
3: popping the, off,
0: and I then was, you can yeah. see yeah. Uh,
2: I was it's focusing so cool. too much on the left image, but now I can see the uh on the middle image, uh, or video, I should say. Yeah, it's more there's
1: clear. um, there are like microtubule severing proteins that'll um, sever it. And she, oh, I forgot what I was going to say, it'll you can see that here. So, like, for instance, like it'll it'll sever, and this you can actually see the individual, like mm. if you. Count it here, you could see the individual eight microtubules. This would be along the proplatelet shaft. Um, and in cross-section, um you can see like the the individual rods um, that are extended. So they the microtubules will line the proplatelets. So what's cool is that the proplatelets don't or the microtubules don't just act as um like the like the muscles, the bones and muscles to power it, but they also act as a highway that the granules mm. and the contents that all the the organelles, the mitochondria walk down. Very cool. To get into the, the tips, which then become the platelets. So this is a video where you'll see the the um extending proplatelets, and what is labeled are the alpha granules so basically the alpha granules are trafficked down the pro platelets and wind up in the tip and and it's yeah and they're powered by motor proteins which is which is like basically like this to me it's like little ants and this is like stripped away so this was like an actual experiment where if you took a microtubule you could see the granule walking along it this is like your like basic cell biology like key dependent motor protein on a microtubule this is like all stuff joe did like amazing but it's so cool because it's it's like general
0: cell bio but it's like application of it to the platelet
1: i know
2: so yeah like well in in general cell bio in the sense that i i for me this is just putting so many different pieces together a lot of what the biology was has been like um more of an abstract narrative for me And this has been, like, this is, like, much more concrete and, like...
1: But, like, we still don't understand how it's, like, so specific. It's, like, how do you literally know that, like, in this is, like, fibrinogen and, like, all these, like, things that wind up the same in each platelet. Like, that's still wild. It is wild. Um, But we understand that it goes down these microtubule highways and it gets caught in the tip and then it gets released, which is like still a very cool level of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And we've done experiments where we'll like actually feed proteins, like fluorescent proteins to megakaryocytes and then see that it winds up in the same place in megakaryocytes and in platelets and like different colors of of the protein and it goes in the same place. So like we know it goes in the same place each time. And we're just like, how do you do it? <laughs> you know? It's like confirmation. And, um, and so you said these are of- and sorry, you said these are alpha granules, right? These are alpha granules because um we label like content that we know goes into alpha granules dense granules we know less about and it's very hard to label dense granules because uh it's like atp like we don't have good markers for that we know very little about dense granules they're like the black hole of
2: (laughs) refresh my memory melissa i get an area of ignorance here but the the dense granules that's uh, there's an endo like the bringing in from the surrounding is that the
1: that's
2: the alpha granules. It is the alpha. All right. My yeah. Opinion,
1: no, alpha so. granules do both. They they start out with stuff, but they can also yeah. end up Dense granules are like serotonin mm-hmm. and um, ATP. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Those are like the two main things. Yeah. Um, but we're just like, don't know very much about them because they're very hard to label because mm-hmm. you just can't really i don't know why serotonin's been just like bad antibodies and stuff and like you can't really label like adp and adp mm-hmm. so we just forget about them a lot but when they're released they kind of propagate platelets own activation so it, it's interesting yeah. so at, at what point does the you said
0: before, the contents are in the megakaryocyte are just kind of sitting in those little microvesicles, and at what point do they get, I guess, put in or created into alpha granules? And that yeah,
1: like literally, some point here ish. Like we don't really know because in the cell body they're in these multivesicular bodies, and then they're transported along these microtubule highways and we don't really know where like the sorting center is
3: hmm. um
1: if it's literally along the proplatelets, if there's like a little amazon stop before they get on the proplatelets, where there's like a do 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 like we have no idea but somehow once they like reach this um there's let's see this is another cool image showing just um the tip so you can see at the tip of this pro platelet that the coils are already beginning to form um like it's gonna pinch off so somewhere along you know it's like there are three steps and you know it's going to sever, and this is going to end up with the granules. We don't know exactly the transition points. So if in the... Granule packaging or any of that.
0: In the fluorescent image, is the green the tubulin?
1: Yes. What is the red? We don't know what the red is. Okay. All right. I'm a bad and, presenter.
0: No, that's okay. And then on, in the right image... That's the tubulin. And are the circles that are on there? Is that the alpha granules getting walked down? No,
1: I, the, the, um, the other is actin. Okay. So yeah, so this is a cryolium, which is a really cool thing where it's actually like, almost like you crack and you freeze and crack it. It's a really specific process. So it just keeps the cytoskeleton. So the actin kind of, it's almost like a tennis racket. And then the actin kind of is the meshwork. And the actin also is what attaches the membrane. So if you put it over the actin will attach the membrane and the actin attaches the membrane proteins. Um, so that holds everything else together. And the tubulin, the microtubules are like really like the more structural component of it yeah so beautiful i mean it's like really really cool
2: so most of the cell is kind of gone in that right image right it's just yeah it's just the side
1: this is just just the cytoskeleton that's really neat. so it's just like stripped away it's like just like the like a house if you just had like the um, frame the frame of the house these are
2: beautiful images like I'm blown away by some of these visualizations. I mean,
1: I take no credit for it, but, like, that's what (laughs) Joe and his mentor, John Hartwig, who, like, really pioneered a lot of the cytoskeleton field, he did these on his own. He was a character, man, like, old school scientist, and they said, so I just overlapped with him for, like, a year before he retired, and he scared the shit out of me. I mean, he was really funny, but and apparently he would just go into this little room and do this and just blare like hard rock. Uh and I'm like, yeah, great. You just like, you know, those stories that you hear and just get these amazing cryo em images. So, you know, love it. He's a good guy, really good guy. Um, so then this is maybe the missing piece of what we haven't talked about, the conversion of those bigger pieces into the smaller platelets so um this is an older this is from 2017 where you can see the resolution isn't as good so this is an older intravital where you can see this is the meg is releasing man it looks so bad now this was one of the first intravital images of a meg making platelets in and that we captured it i remember when it came out and we were like oh my god so you have to think about this we have no idea what Megs are going to make platelets and when they're going to do it. So, literally, these people are just looking for Megs and watching them. No idea. So, how many hours they spent just in a dark room with nothing? It's just like winning the lottery, probably like hundreds of hours of taking videos of nothing happening. And then suddenly like oh my god something's happening like it was it's a lot of nothing I mean most of science is a lot of nothing but we never seen that happen
2: I just imagine like the tv like uh the surveillance the cop surveillance in the van you know just
1: yeah it's literally that just like (laughs) here's the are we ever gonna see this we don't know and it was the same with Joe with the the Megan culture just refocusing the microscope nothing happening nothing happening So, I mean, he tells like he would just come in and refocus the microscope at 2 a.m., 4 a.m. because, you know, it's slightly moving and you don't know when that meg's gonna ever make platelets if it is, so. So anyway, so these are larger um, cells and then they undergo these repeated rounds of fission and it basically makes this figure eight, which is what you can see here. And then at that, you know, vision point, it'll, it'll sever. And this was, this was published when I first started as a postdoc by the postdoc before me. And this is the severing point you can see by, excuse me, EM here. And this is a fluorescence image of it happening.
2: It looks like, too, um, on that A series of images to the right, you have this three-dimensional kind of map, sort of. Mm-hmm. And it looks like there's, like, this tor- like this twisting force. Exactly. So that's, that's really cool.
1: Yeah. So this was the proposed, like, they did mathematical modeling. And this was, it was, I guess it was a bit controversial at the time because people didn't know if platelets were released in as platelet size or if it was more bigger and they're they propose like no they're they're releasing bigger fragments because people argued like well why don't we see these bigger fragments in the blood Hmm. and they were like well this actually just just happens very quickly and if you look or draw into a different like basically like well it will actually also just happen in the test tube (laughs) like that's why you don't see it and it Actually, if you draw into a different kind of anticoagulant, you will see it um uh it it's you know an artifact of whatever, so now it's very accepted um that this that this happens and that it's in larger fragments. so as is you know science new theories and things like that, so this is basic and more intravital. You saw in the other intravital, it's it's larger fragments. So more intravital has. So then this is just, uh, I think this is pretty cool. Um, there's a lot, a lot of these like bioreactors. People are very interested in making platelets in vitro um, because people wanna do infusions or devi- like um, make platelets, designer platelets, things like that. So there are a lot of companies. Um, so this is a bioreactor that we have where you seed megakaryocytes in the top, and you can see that they'll make proplatelets in the direction of flow. And it it looks very similar to in vivo. Um, so whereas in culture and in, and in vivo, really, we don't really know when they're going to make proplatelets, it's pretty obvious that shear will induce them to do it which is interesting. Um, and people have taken advantage of that. Um, I People have been successful. Um, the the industry is kind of reaching a tipping point because while they've been successful in making these megacary sites and platelets, I think the problem is that the cost is just not adding up. It's just not gonna be cheaper than donations. So now they're pivoting and saying, okay, well, can we use it for like a rare disease, or can we make a designer platelet? And and I don't know where where it's going. I don't have like a dog in this way. I don't have any. Um, there's these two companies, um, platelet biogenesis, which Joe's involved in, and this company in Japan who uses a, the platelet bio uses kind of a like what I showed the bioreactor. They use like this, almost like circular shear device yeah to make so like a i don't know you could if you're interested what it's
2: like a vortex a vortex it's more like
1: a vortex yeah he like he the koji ito who's the head of it, is really nice guy he described almost like a hot tub like a, <laughs>
2: like a, a hot tub <laughs> yeah
1: um and i don't know like the stuff that they're making is good and the, it's just cost like you're like, look, my science is good. Like, they don't, industry doesn't care. They're like, how much does the bag cost? And you're like, four million dollars. Like, cool, we get it for free from this guy down the street, you know? So I don't know. It's interesting to follow, but not my thing. But I think it's interesting worth mentioning. So one to like bring it back around and just talk a little bit about platelet activity because it feels incomplete to me not to even though it's not my my main love but you know you had asked about it as well which is like okay we got there um mega carry sites the best make pro platelets make platelets what happens to these platelets and how are they keeping us alive basically so they're circulating unactivated and they have all these receptors, super, like, kind of like taking time bombs, right? And these receptors are um, sensitive to lots of different things, Um, fibrinogen, ADP. um, One of the main things is like something like collagen or von Willebrand factor, which is exposed if you have vascular denuding or a cut. So let's say that you have a cut. Now that platelet sees collagen, which is under the surface of your endothelial cells or von Willebrand factor, it's gonna engage these receptors and cause this downstream signaling. And importantly, this looks complicated. It is, honestly, I don't know very much about this platelet signaling. I'm always like, someone else can do that. Um, But it all converges to similar things. Which causes platelet activation and the release of all those granules, which then causes more platelet activation. Um, any of any activation of these receptors is, like, long story short, an amplification pathway. Um, it will cause the granules to be released, which you can see here, often dense granules, and aside from a lot of other things in these granules, there are also things in the granules to cause more platelet activation. And so the platelets around them will activate. And now we're basically getting um, a plug at the wound. And we're gonna get the platelets to aggregate. And that's basically what's seen here. So the first thing is the adhesion, which is like that receptor binding to collagen. And we just need now a layer of platelets to plug that wound. Oh, you can see that I literally stole this from my postdoc who speaks Spanish. My gosh, (laughs) real talk right here. We're getting the liberation of granules (laughs) in Spanish Um, and the release of things like ADP and thromboxane um, and the activation. Uh, which will lead to aggregation and shape change. So those are kind of the, um... <laughs> oh my God, I love that I didn't change it. You guys, this is like a real PI moment right here. <laughs> um, the aggregation. Um, so this is just in a very short nutshell, what's going to happen to the platelets. Um, and the, they're going to stay, they're going to stay here until they are basically Done their job and then they're gonna get cleared. And no platelet is gonna stay in circulation once it's been activated and degranulated, even if it's not at the wound site. Um, as soon as your platelets have been like triggered, they are cleared. Um, and that's why you're constantly making new platelets. Um, and they're removed. So just like a very brief note about how your platelet counts are regulated which I think is super interesting is basically TIPO levels. And this is like a, this is like playing the long game. Um, so TIPO is made in the liver. And basically what happens is there's a constant-ish level in your circulation, but if, and platelets absorb TIPO. So if you have a low platelet count, that then means you have increased levels of TIPO in your blood. So that TPO is going to feed back on your bone marrow and you'll have more TPO. So HSCs will see it and say, okay, we are seeing a lot of TIPO. We're going to make more MEGs because TIPO makes H- H- HSCs become MEGs.
2: You just you just blew my mind, by the way. I had right? no idea that platelets were that directly involved. Like the directly fact they,
3: involved. Yeah. Just completely of, directly involved.
2: Like well, TPO, I always think of EPO, right? So like right. I'm kind of a red cell guy and um where that the process is different, right? They sound these chemicals sound the same. They do yeah.
1: similar ish functions.
2: Yeah. But the, the fact that platelets absorb the TPL. Yeah, just and that's,
1: completely like not not at all complicated, just like direct.
2: That's so neat.
1: Yeah, so, it's really good. But because TPO regulates HSCs, yeah. the feedback takes like at least five days.
2: Mm-hmm. And so, then maybe that explains the need for that evolutionary mechanism you were pointing to with the non-differentiated.
1: Right. So, but that's also why like, TIPO regulating TIPO isn't that good of a therapeutic and we have right. to give people platelet transfusions right so you're like, oh I'll just give you wow. a TIPO medic I hope you don't die of low platelet counts in the next five days
2: yeah right right it's mm-hmm. not
1: fast like this is what my research is trying to find is something that can directly increase platelet count so so like then the opposite is true, like if you have high platelet counts, you're going to have a little TPO in your blood because that those platelets are like taking it out of circulation. So then less HSCs are going to become meds. So that basically brings us to what I was talking about is, you know, there are disorders of platelet number that are not because of TPO. Um I think a lot of it is drug-induced, uh, like drug-induced thrombocytopenia and thrombocytosis is actually very common in malignancy. Um, and a lot of it I think ties back to inflammation. We don't really understand which inflammatory processes and it could be in because of the increase in these HSCs that are meg-committed. We don't know. And that's what I'm interested in studying. Um, so we talked a lot about this. Um, so we know, and like, it's, it's, I think it, it's wild. So like the only thing that we know that drives hematopoietic stem cells to turn into mature megakaryocytes is TIPO. But the thing that I didn't tell you, and you're going to be like, what the hell, Kelly, is that mice that are, don't have knockout mice for TPO. Or its receptor MPL have platelets, and we don't know why.
3: Presumably, there's something else.
2: Right, right. Because
1: they have platelets and they live. I have those mice, but we're like, so so they live and
2: they thrive, right? So there's.
1: I mean, they're not like the happiest. They have low platelet counts, but they're alive and they can breed. Mm. And but we're like go around telling people the only thing that causes meg differentiation is tpo yet we have these mice downstairs that literally don't have tpo and they're alive and have platelets so
2: yeah it's weird there's not many like redundant mechanisms like this right and and
3: and i mean yeah
1: like there is something else we just don't know what it is hmm. so on the other hand like we actually I spent most of today telling you about this which we've done a good job working out we know how proplatelets are released like all these cytoskeletal mechanisms the thing that we really have no idea still is is this so like it seems to happen spontaneously um both in culture and in vivo but we actually have no idea what triggers this process um we don't know which cells will do it and when they'll do it. Um, so this is kind of the holy grail of the field right now is figuring out what triggers mature megacarycytes to begin proplatelet formation. Um, and specifically, you know, so that they would do it immediately, like in the TPO independent process. So we would be able to give therapeutics when someone would come in with low platelet counts that is a therapeutic that isn't a, that could potentially replace a platelet transfusion. Mm. That would be the goal. Um, so I just want, thought it would be fun to end with something really cool. We, this was published um, in February. So really recently, and it was really driven by this student. Um, this The first author, Abdullah Khan Abs, he's brilliant. And he created this human bone marrow organoid. So it was the first um, human bone marrow organoid. So it was derived from induced pluripotent stem cells. And it basically models a myeloid organoid. So it doesn't have the lymphoid component of the bone marrow, but it has the myeloid component of the bone marrow. So it is an in-between space and i think in research we're trying to move more into these in-between spaces so it's not just a 2d culture of bone marrow cells these cells are interacting with each other but we also don't have to use animals for everything because one you know for reasons of not using animals and two it's not always great to use animals um We can't, like I said, like we can't get the resolution and it's expensive and we can't ask all the questions we want to. Um, I mean, this isn't perfect either. It is, it's not so much as, it's difficult in a way that it's tedious. It takes a lot of work. The technician that doesn't calls it her Tamagotchi because it it always needs things. Um, She's like always having to do things on weekends it has this differentiation protocol where it's like these little spheres. Um, and then this is actually, it's so it starts with induced pluripotent stem cells, which is basically um, stem cells that could become anything. And they're human. And then it self-organizes. I mean, it sounds science fiction to me even. This is on day 12, it actually sprouts blood vessels um and then this is on when they're matured this it looks like it could be a reflection but this is actually the organoids um this is the size of them so like i'll keep my pointer here that's one you could just see them in the bottom of a well and you can kind of treat them like you would treat cells Um, So they're like a tiny, you can see them with your eye, but they're like a solid mass. So you can embed them in like you would a tissue section and you can like slice them and you can H&E stain them um, or you can dissociate them and treat them like single cells. So it's really cool. Um, Hold on, let me... So this is like a whole organoid that we stained. and you can see the different cell populations. Um, in green are megakaryocytes, and they they actually form vascular networks. This is moving throughout one, so it's not just on the periphery. Um, and we're interested in using them for megakaryocytes. So this is if you actually look at the endothelial network, um and this is a megakaryocyte modeled and you, you can see that they will actually make proplatelets into the vasculature which is wild and we can get better resolution looking i mean this is one of the things that i really want to use this organoid for is the interactions between endothelial cells and megakaryocytes and we did some modeling uh, like some single cell looking at those two populations. And these are two populations that are very well represented in the organoid. So I think it's a good, you know, in science, everything is a model. Mice too, like we aren't mice. So I that's something to keep in mind. And whatever question you're asking, I think you just need to keep in mind, is this a good model for what I'm studying? Mm. So I think this it's is...
2: compelling when you see these normal physiologies repeated, though, right? Like, it's... yeah,
1: exactly. So it's like, is obviously, if I'm looking at lymphoid, this is a terrible model. There's no representation, but like for endothelial cell and meg, yeah, I think this is a good model because actually these are the two cells that are that do very well in the organoid. Mm. Um, so, so like, yeah, let's let's move forward with that. Just always keeping in mind that. Things in the body behave differently, but it's so hard to study this. So maybe we can get some some insight into it and and how it makes these podosomes, these holes, and breaks through and things like that. So that's some of the things we're interested in. Um, so this is you know this is a little technical, but this is some of the single cell sequencing we did. We like looked at human bone marrow and how it overlays. Um, this is all published. But this is some of the, some of the images that we've been getting recently, um, again, the whole organoid, but these are some of the pro platelets, which I think are really cool. You can see the extensions and here, like you can even see the tips, um, kind of that like teardrop shape mm-hmm. um, extending into the vasculature. So it's just like, I just, I mean, I always tell my trainees too. And they're like, I don't know if it's work. I'm like, I don't know. Like, just try it. Like, this is something that I'd be like,
3: wow.
1: like, why would this, how do cells know how to do this? Like, mm-hmm. why would this ever work? Like, they're just going to, but like, I guess that's also the human body. Like, yeah. oh, we're just going to like start out as two cells and make a literal human. That's cool.
2: Life seems monumentally improbable,
3: right? right? It's really? Like, right. so yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. so I guess that's like what we're doing we're just gonna like start out with IPSCs and give it these different combinations of cocktails and then just like make a little baby bone marrow great that's totally okay so so Um, in
2: in the pre in the previous slides you had what looked like it's like a three-dimensional image of um yes super complex uh this must be so much data from. To yeah, kind of... yeah.
1: So basically, this is like single cell sequencing, and what you do is you get the the transcriptome of every cell, and then you cluster together like cells, and you see what kind like the populations how it clusters. So this then predicts what kind of cells you have in the organoid. So people usually do this for normal bone marrow. And then you say like, okay, what kind of cells are these? So we wanted to see if our organoid would look like normal bone marrow, which is like a high ask. And basically it did, but like, we didn't want to overextend our findings. So instead of calling it like, like we called these like monocyte neutrophil Progenitors and megakaryocyte one and megakaryocyte two, um, MSC one, MSC two. So it we have populations that are very much like um, normal human bone marrow, um, but not ex- exactly. Which is, um, but we wanted people to be able to kind of map and say like, okay, well, how does this compare? To you know, normal bone marrow, what can we call this? So yeah, we have progenitor cells and we have kind of an early mid late erythroid. It's actually quite good for erythroid, and it'll spit out red blood cells, like pop it out of the organoid as it as it goes along. Um, so genetically, this is how it compares to a, um as, as like a normal bone marrow,
2: and you said this of is off of uh, this is a student, like a PhD student that came up with this.
1: He's or? a he's a postdoc, and yeah. he's start he's gonna start his own lab. He's like insanely smart. I know. When we have conversations, I'm just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, definitely understand. <laughs> he's great. I mean, and also he did a lot of this during COVID, which yeah he would have done it anyway but i just feel like it allowed him to really just like do it
2: that's a, i i tend to um so like i think like you know not to get political but like policies i tr- really try to stress how important research is and i think how important like government's position might be in nurturing research cuz like when you can let a scientist's imagination just kind of run wild the most gifted people we have can come up with truly amazing things yeah. like this. Um and like and, and like what I is this going to
1: yield, just, like, who knows. Yeah. I think also like the fact that really hard projects like this take time, like this took years mm-hmm. and that there'll be a lot of investment up front, but the payoff like you have to keep in mind that you're gonna like invest a lot for like a big payoff. Yeah. That's a lot of what research is. It's not like I feel good every day. And then it's like a lot of like like doot 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 uh toot doot doot. Um yeah, it's it's not linear. And yeah. most of the time you just feel like you're failing or you don't know what's going on. Um, and that's probably a good thing. Hmm and then you figure it out and you try different things like i rem- he like built a 3d printer to try to figure out the scaffolding for this like there was a lot of just trying everything um to figuring to figure out like different combinations this is that like most of the time it doesn't work and and basically then it works and it takes a very short amount of time a lot mm-hmm. of the time
3: yeah those are the
1: explosions
2: right like exactly it's like
1: failing 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 it working and then gathering all your data in six months so i think that's what people don't understand it's not just like two months of gradually doing data it's like a lot of it especially for things like this is just protocol development which means doing the wrong thing for a long time and then finding the thing that works. And then you just get everything rapidly.
3: Yeah.
1: So I think it could feel discouraging. But if you could reframe that as like, okay, this is exciting. I'm like, you know, doing things no one's done before. I mean, I'm, I say that as I'm like the one sitting in my office. But it's hard. But like that really is what it is. You're just, right. if you're trying to do something like yeah. this it's just doing the wrong thing until you find the thing like he tried for like the you embed it in like a matrix like he just tried like every different kind of matrix until he found the one where it sprouted vessels yep yep like, how long do you think that took and then it was yeah. on backorder because of covid yeah. and like we were shipping it to him from here
2: <laughs> well you had faith right I. that sounds like you uh uh
1: yeah, he was supposed to come here and do it and then he couldn't because of COVID and then Gel's on back order so we're like walking down the hall to he says, anyone will trade you for me? Like, it's just like not as glamorous as it is. Now I'm like, yeah. look at this organoid. Like, meanwhile, we're like bartering for gel. You know, it's like <laughs> the behind the scenes. We're yeah. like, we'll pay you for this. What do you want? So it's all just, it's like MacGyvering. Like, if you're doing that, you're doing it right. <laughs> Like trading beer for weird reagents. <laughs> so, and then this is, this is a recent one that we just got, like we're testing just, I guess the point here was like, now we're testing the effects of things we do in our 2D cultures, in our 3D cultures. Cause if we do 3D cultures, we kind of have to rethink everything. And it's like, and this is like a, a vessel, like a really cool vessel that you can see. Uh, an image that we got and and in red are megs you can see that are like sticking to the and these small things are our platelets so we're starting to just get really cool images um again so like a long way from the that technology
2: yeah i was just about to say a long way from that 2007 ish yeah video. right yeah, yeah it's yeah. like
1: now but like it's so cool but like Again, like now we can start to ask those questions. Like we've always had those questions, but like that's one of the cool things about research is it's it's so iterative. Like, okay, yep. now that we have the technology, we can ask these questions that have been in my head. And and this is why collaboration is so great, because you're like, okay, well, you have this technology now. Like I can't be an expert in everything. Right. So now I like found this person who's doing this, and you like make great friends along the way because you're like, I'm just gonna. Keep knowing my mega carry sites because, like, my brain just—you know—it's going downhill for me. Like, I'm getting stuff you know, I'm losing brain cells, so I'm just gonna keep making better friends as we go along. Um,
2: <laughs> You're too humble.
1: Well, you know. So, yeah, it, it's it's very exciting. All the things that are coming out. So. So yeah. This, this, so that's it. Um this is my little group here. And then this is Joe and these are, um, his, his postdocs and our technicians. Um, and I have a lot of collaborators. I love collaborating because I love people. And I also, like I said, feel like I think it's better to let people do their area of expertise and I do my area of expertise. And that's, uh, the best way to to work together. So that's, that's all I got.
2: This is incredible. I mean, I I think even if this video just got totally deleted, you've changed uh, uh, like a basis <laughs> of a lot of understanding. I mean, I so, you know, instructing hematology at the undergrad level, um, we only go in the weeds so much, right? But the better I understand the processes, the more I can kind of um,
3: yeah. get the basis. I'm so
1: glad. I'm, I mean, this was so fun. I'm glad that we got to like, talk back and forth because it it helped me um but it was like great to to talk through it and to do a little to do a little basic science and and a little of my research too yeah um it's so fun and I think I don't know I mean I hope I feel like science education is not great And I really like kind of delineating the line of things that we know and things that we don't know. I think it's something that not many people know because we do a bad job of telling them.
3: Mm -hmm. So
1: just kind of having people understand like, we we don't know this. Like yeah. this is where the line is. We're still trying to figure these things out.
2: Yeah, and I, I think the the scientifically illiterate right would point that as a weakness. I find it as a it's a big strength in the scientific community to be able to say we don't know right. Yeah, and this is you know these are good areas for questions.
1: Yeah, but just like we do a bad job communicating to the public.
2: Agreed. Yeah. Um, in it's general. also more and more difficult to communicate with the public. I would think too because um from what i'm seeing uh education in the united states specifically has been hit and miss
1: i know and it just is becoming more and more polarized and then we're just like preaching to the choir it's yeah, so so hard it's something i'm very interested in but like reaching a, a broad audience is just very hard
3: yeah it's true
2: yeah so as we discover things, they're more and more complicated. They also become harder and harder to communicate, right? Like
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's true.
2: The nuance and everything. But um the yeah, this was absolutely stellar. I I can't thank you enough for
1: I'm so happy to do it. I'm glad. Yeah, was,
2: thank so you so cool. much.
0: This has been amazing. Yeah. So, um
2: yeah. Uh thanks uh for to Kelly. Uh thanks uh for the audience for for listening and um. Uh, Please uh, reach out to us. We love hearing questions, comments. Yeah, and same. Like that.
1: I'm always happy to be contacted.
2: Yep. Yep. And we'll, we have uh, Kelly's information. Uh, we'll post along with the podcast and uh, and forward communications, if you know um, uh, any questions and stuff out there, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Reach out to us uh, like subscribe the whole uh, nine yards there. And um, yeah. Thanks so much. Uh, really appreciate it again, Kelly. It was truly All transformative. Right.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Yep. Yeah. Thanks
2: for your time.